It was the ancient Greeks who gave us the word Odyssey. What you're about to hear is a modern-day American Odyssey whose hero is from Iraq by way of Jordan. My name is Mohammed Kailani. It's pronounced Muhammad al-Kailani in Arabic. And I am a 23-year-old teacher at Falmouth Elementary School in Southern Maine. I teach Spanish to third, fourth, and fifth graders. I speak Arabic, Spanish, English, some French, and a little bit of Russian. Mohammed assumes many roles in this odyssey. The first is what started him on his journey. He is a refugee. When you walk on the streets in Jordan, usually the people that you saw begging were Iraqi women. When I was walking with my mom and seeing if these women are sitting on the street trying to sell something, someone would try to throw their stuff or trample on them. What they would be in my head was, how long would it be till we're gonna be in that position of not even having home? This is the story of one refugee's odyssey to find home. Welcome to America the Bilingual. I'm Steve Levine. I met Mohammed Kilani at Bowdoin College in Maine. It took me a while to get his name right. So my full name is Mohammed El Kailani. When I came to America, they mistook my grandfather's name as my last name. So my name when I first moved here was Muhammad Sheet, which is my grandfather's name. It's easy for me to say Muhammad, but it's almost impossible for me to say it the way you say yeah. it. So how is it? A Muhammad or Muhammad. So there's different in different dialects of Arabic. You could say Muhammad is the modern standard Arabic way. Muhammad makes it easy on his Spanish students. My students call me Senor Mo, Mr. Mo. How is it that someone with your name became a Spanish teacher? A lot of parents ask me that. I think there's a lot of a huge relationship between Arabic and Spanish, given that, that they lived together for many years. There's all kinds of research about it, but I think it's easy for someone speaking Arabic to learn Spanish. Mohammed then took me back to 8th century world history. When you say they lived together, explain that. Depending on the perspective, people say it. People could see it as an invasion of the Iberian Peninsula, and some people could see it as almost like an enlightenment because it brought new technology, the architecture changed, the people became educated which was, I think, during the Middle Ages, was though that time of age was not very common. So I think it had, some people think it had a beautiful influence, and I'm one of those people. But Spanish was not his first language, or his second, not even his third. Because I was born in Amman, Jordan, my first language is, of course, Arabic. My parents spoke to me in Iraqi dialect. At home. Because there were Iraqis who had immigrated. From Iraq, from Baghdad. My mom was an electrical engineer. She was very, she was doing really well for herself at the time in the 80s. But the Iran war, Iran-Iraq war, losing the war had a huge economic effect. Inflation in the 90s, the borders were locked. Nobody could leave. Except one way, illegally. 
actually my father left under fake names, false identities um, to Jordan in the 90s. Their escape was well-timed. Desert Storm began shortly after they left, but the escape was risky, and so was returning to see family. The only way you could go to Iraq, which is how I visited Iraq as a kid, was you take like a, it's almost like a coyote. You get a coyote from Mexico to the U.S. You get someone that you hire and you take a car and you're driving basically in the desert. Jordan and Iraq. Yeah, incredibly dangerous through routes that are not patrolled or hard to patrol or which became more and more difficult as the years went by. So your, your parents took a big risk. Huge risk, yeah. But being in Jordan, Mohammed said, also carried risks. People would know your dialect, they know you're Iraqi. Um, Jordanians want to keep their circles within the Jordanian community, and it's hard to open up to Iraqi society. People wouldn't really be trusting of them. So the Jordanians, they could tell immediately from the dialect? Absolutely. So the, my my parents learned that Jordanian dialect very quickly. Can you give yeah. me an example yeah. of saying something in the Iraqi dialect and then in the Jordanian dialect? Yeah. So like if you say, how are you? Yeah. In Iraqi dialect or Baghdadi, you would say Shlonek. 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 If you're approaching um, someone in Jordan, you could say Kifak. Kifak. Kifak Shlonek. They sound very different. Are they written the same? Yeah, in Arabic script, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Big difference. Different sound. There's even sounds in a, in, in a rocky Arabic that don't ex- that wouldn't be necessarily made in other dialects, like the ch sound that I think is like very common in like Turkic languages and I've seen it in Russian. Can you give an example? Someone would call T in Jordan Shai but someone in Iraq would call it chai. While his parents might have quickly adopted the Jordanian dialect, there were other things about the culture that they did not embrace. I didn't go to any like public school. My mom sent me to a school where there was also Christians at the school. And it was a better education because it felt like you, you weren't separated from people. The school was also where many languages came together. English was the standard as a second language, but French was just an added language at the school that I was attending because it was there was a lot of Lebanese students. But of course, Lebanon was going through a lot at the time, and there's a huge migrant community living there. Like many war refugees, Mohammed's parents had planned to take him and his younger brother back to Iraq at some point. They had property still in Iraq, hopes of having a home in Iraq and being raised there. But the war started and I think conditions across the world became worse. And my father left my family when I was six. Was that in Jordan? Yeah. And it was a deep hurt because growing up having heard the stories, my mom told me that they were saving to go somewhere else. But my father had taken that money and left. 
which I, to, to myself, I wonder if it was because of desperation or if it was, I don't know, if it was something like he felt like he had to do, but I don't, I, I, I felt like it was a betrayal my whole life. I asked Mohammed if he still feels that way about his father leaving. I think I've moved on from being hyper-focused on the fact that he wasn't there to support the rest of our life. But it's now I feel more, even more grateful for my mother who took the courage to, to raise both my brother and I and even get us here to America and where we are now. When your father left, you were six, your brother yeah. was two. Yeah. And my brother, he was very epileptic. So he, that was a condition that wasn't very easily treatable at the time. And in a place like Jordan, there wasn't very much access to good health care. But my brother was very sick growing up. He didn't go to school like I did because he was sick. My mom took care of him the whole time. At the same time, his mother was doing work on the side in her field of electrical engineering with clients in Iraq. She was very skilled. She was working with oil pipelines. She was working with the electrical aspects of it. So she was very smart, but very limited because she had us. And in a society that where you're a single woman, it's not very acceptable. A lot of neighbors after my father left were questioning my mom, what happened? Why? Some people stopped being friends with her. So it, she felt really isolated. I wonder how my mom even did it. Mohammed had told me how quickly his mom switched from Iraq Arabic to Jordanian Arabic, even at home, if she needed to. She must have sensed at this point that she needed to make an even bigger switch. She applied for refugee status for her children and herself to the United States. After a two-year wait, they were granted asylum. The three of them arrived in the U.S. in February 2009, landing at Dallas, Fort Worth. At nine and a half, you, yeah. you step off this airplane, you get out of the yeah. airport. Uh, what were your impressions? When someone says everything's bigger in Texas, I've never took that so much to heart because I didn't learn that phrase till after I had my experience with Texas and just seeing like American pickup truck or cars on the road or seeing how far everything was. We have a lot of those. In I've never seen how far everything was like getting to a destination, like seeing like school was 40 minutes by bus. That to me was like out of the world. I was like, are we going to school in a different country? I remember like when we got to the housing the like project that we lived in and trying to find like a convenience store. I remember my mom and I, my brother walked three miles to this once. That was like the closest store that people told us to go to. Cause you had no car. We had no car. To me, it was like wild. What was, what were your living situation like? We lived in a housing project that to me was really nice. It was the first time that I saw a tub, like a nice shower because the way we showered at home was 
we heated the water in like big pots and then we would just pour water and wash ourselves because we didn't have running hot water. So it was, to me, that was like, whoa, this is really nice living. But it was not so nice for his little brother. Then my brother was not getting better for his epilepsies. They said he would die. He wasn't very doing very good in Texas. It was really hot. So my brother it was a different kind of heat. So my brother, his epilepsy was reactive. Anything that was a big change for him, he had an epileptic reaction to it. It'd be on the floor and like mouth blue and all that stuff. But when we, my mom was, I think she was on the brink, not knowing what to do. Through a friend in Jordan, Mohammed's mother was able to connect with a humanitarian worker who found the family a sponsor in Portland, Maine. About six months later, they left the heat of Texas Plains for the cool coast of Maine. By that time, Mohammed told me he had pretty much forgotten the French he had learned in school in Jordan. He threw himself into learning English. So I was pushing myself really hard, watching shows, really interacting with a lot of people, going to the Boys and Girls Club camps and whatever enrichment there was to get better. By seventh grade, his English was good enough to get him into a mainstream classroom where he could take a language. He wanted French, but that class was already filled. So they stuck you in Spanish. Which I don't think was a bad, a bad thing. So when did you first get exposed to Spanish? And a seventh grade. It was like the, I think it was like the last three months. I remember like being really happy because I was in like with all my friends in Spanish class and Spanish class was fun. But things got more difficult in high school. I went to private school, Catholic school. I was the only Muslim at the school. So I was completely out of, I couldn't really relate to anyone about anything. Until he stepped into Spanish class. The teacher there is from... Argentina. So she was really great. I had classes with her all four years. She was the one who championed me to go study, to do a study abroad program or like I applied for the, for a scholarship through the program and they gave me the scholarship, but they said, Oh, it's in Chile. All you got to pay for is a plane ticket. And the plane ticket was already like $1,500 or something to, to, at the time to me, it was like a fortune, like a, like amount of money that I couldn't possibly make in a yeah. year. So I, I told my teacher and she was like, you have to go. This is like the best opportunity you'll ever get. So Mohammed went to work, literally. But I got a dishwashing job and I worked all the way to the summer from like during school all the way to the summer. And I saved up for the plane ticket and I went. Yeah. And so yeah. how was that? It was incredible. I think it was one of the best experiences of my life at the time. The way they spoke Spanish, felt like they were speaking Arabic. They used the same hand gestures, the, the way they approach you, the respect for elders. It, a lot of things like translated in my head that I was like, this is like Arab culture to me. And this is really cool. But Your Spanish yeah. was wonderful when you got back. It was awesome. So awesome that Mohammed took honors and AP classes in Spanish for the rest of high school. And then it was time for college. Mohammed applied to a number of prestigious liberal arts colleges and got into three of them. Middlebury College in Vermont, 
which has that famous language program we reported on in season three, was one. But I remember my mom and I drove there, and it was a really far drive, and just my mom was like, I can't come see you. So part of the reason you chose Bowdoin was to be closer to home? Closer to home. And it had a really prestige, and it felt, wow, this is awesome. It felt, and to me, it was Harvard. To me, this is the best place I could be. He found his place, but initially didn't find his way at Bowdoin. So he took the most liberal arts path of all. I tried a little bit of everything. Like I, I remember taking like a chemistry class and took a history class, a Russian history class. I took a Russian language class, writing, and they were all great. But it felt like by sophomore year that I knew Spanish was, or like a language was more what I should be doing. And you ended up uh, majoring in? In Hispanic studies. I found out that doing it with education was a better idea because I could get a skill that I could directly apply after graduating. Like I could teach right away. Not surprisingly, given Mohammed's propensity to find opportunities, he soon found this one. I did like a little internship at, at the same place that helped my mom acquire a lot of, um, do a lot of paperwork and um, think, uh, you know, all those things that um, immigrants need uh, upon arrival. And that place is called ILAP, the Immigrant Legal Advocacy Project. And that's when I got to really practice Spanish. I got to translate documents in Arabic too. That was a really cool experience to practice how language is heard. It was after his internship that Mohammed decided he could use his language skills to see even more of the world than he already had. I knew I wanted to study abroad. And I chose the Universidad de Salamanca in Salamanca, Spain. And which is a really great, prestigious university that has a well-known language, linguistic program. He started in January 2020. Little did he or any of us know what was about to happen. I spent two full months before the pandemic, um, put a full stop on everything class. Thank goodness you got some, and you got a couple of months in uh, living abroad before everything shut down. Yeah, they took us to Portugal, to Lisbon. It's a really fun traveling experience. But when I came back, I knew that it, it felt even more important to bring Spanish back or to keep it in my life. There was another opportunity that Mohammed pursued that pandemic year. I got a Fulbright up the summer after going abroad. Explain uh, for those who don't know, including me, uh, what a Fulbright scholarship uh, means and what it entails. There's different tiers of Fulbright where you go as an English teaching assistant, and that was what I applied for. It's very competitive. Uh, It's like a national scholarship, and there's like a limited amount of students, fellows that they send for each country. First of all, congratulations on being awarded a Fulbright. Yeah. However, you didn't accept. No. And it was was a tough decision. Uh, I waited till the very last day. But at the time, my mom was getting a little bit sick and she had needed me there. And it felt like it wasn't the right decision to make to go away for a year. So what'd you do instead? So I... Knew I had to make a backup plan. I knew I could do Border Teacher Scholars in the spring, but I had to apply right away. 
Mohammed applied for the Bowdoin Teacher Scholars Program and was accepted. It gave him the chance to earn his teacher certification. Then when I did the program, I was placed at a middle school in Portland and taught seventh and eighth grade Spanish. And towards the end of that experience, I applied for a, a scholarship, which, was, which would be given to new teachers in the state of Maine. But the scholarship wasn't actually for Muhammad. And the scholarship was $1,000 towards your classroom that you could spend on anything in your classroom, which was, I thought was incredible. And I was one of the two people that was awarded. That money actually made this year a great year for me and my students because I bought so many books for my classroom library. So what books are these? Are books in Spanish or bilingual? Oh, they're bilingual picture books, Spanish and English featuring BIPOC. That word BIPOC? Yes. Black, indigenous, people of color, peoples of color. It's, um, it's commonly used now to refer to books that are featuring different identities. Mm-hmm. What a great idea for a scholarship to award it to a teacher $1,000 to buy materials for your class. I like, I bought ABCs and like numbers. In and, Espanol. In Espanol, el tiempo, la hora, <laughs> all those things. And the kids had told me that they'd never had a Spanish class where it was just, there were so many posters and like Spanish things you could look at around the room. To me, that felt like it brought shine and happiness. Why did you want to teach right away? It felt like the right thing to do. I always appreciated my teachers. I learned a lot from them. I think having the respect I have for teachers made me want to become like them. Do you always want to be teaching Spanish? I really hope to teach Arabic someday. I don't think it would be that hard for someone that might be interested in learning a few Arabic phrases so that they can feel a deeper connection to someone they might know in their life. Do you think it's important for more Americans to learn Arabic? Yeah, I think so. I think learning language is also something you could do as an empathetic thing you can do for someone else. If you have a new immigrant community, it would be wise to go learn a few phrases, learn about their culture, to see what they're doing, to maybe share that with them so that you can be friends. And in that friendship, a lot of things sprout out. I just know a lot of families families here in Maine that are looking, hey, are there any families that want to play with our kids just so our kids can talk to each other or learn from each other? It's not just to get your point across. It's to feel connection. As Mohammed and I were speaking, I noticed he had a few tattoos. One of them was on his left arm. I think it's Celtic. I was told that it meant protection. And it's my mother's initial, my brother's initial, my initial. And I kind of, they both have a lot of meaning to me in the sense that it's like who I am, my family. He had another one that caught my eye. I noticed um, you have a tattoo on your right arm. It, It looks like a date. Yeah, it's Roman numerals. It's actually the date that I came to America. It says February 26, 2009. Why did you um, have the date you came to America tattooed on your arm? I think that was a, I think that was a transformative 
experience in my life. I think it was like a, it's like a canon event. A what event? A canon event. Canon? Yeah, or like a, it felt an event that was really important. What would my life be like if I wasn't here? Maybe most immigrants to the United States and certainly refugees to the United States are very happy to be here. But you're the first one I've met who has tattooed the date they arrived in this country on their right arm. This place, America, is, is perceived so different abroad. And I really encourage people to take a communities like Portland, Maine, and Brunswick, Maine, and, and see how much connection there is between the people, how much empathy there is here. Um, I've seen Americans really take risks in wanting to get to know people. Maybe not all, across all parts, but I think it exists. Adversary, but then seeing that America for its people, the people that live here, the people that unite it, because it's the people that live here are immigrants or previous immigrants or children of immigrants or related in some way to immigrants. I, I, I know a lot of people wouldn't agree with me, um, but I just encourage them to see communities like this. When you say a lot of people wouldn't agree with you, you mean people in Jordan or Iraq? Yeah. There's always going to be hate for the decisions made, for the meddling on the diplomatic level, which I think is so fair, right? So fair to be critical of. But I think the big thing, the smarter thing to do is to overcome that. The bigger thing to do is to see America as a place of hope, a hope because of its people. In Homer's epic poem, Odysseus finally returns to Greece, his home. So does Muhammad in his Odyssey, but his home is no longer Jordan or Iraq. Maine uses an unusual term to describe their immigrants. What is it? New Mainers. It's a great name for people. You already feel welcome by that name. There's a coda to this story of Muhammad and his family. The one-time refugees and immigrants are now full-time U.S. citizens. Muhammad lives with his mom in Portland. His younger brother is now himself a student at Bowdoin. His brother hasn't had another epileptic seizure since moving to Maine. My thanks to Bowdoin College and Carmen Greenlee, the humanities and media librarian, for providing Podcast Studio D, where this episode was recorded. Also thanks to Professor Margaret Boyle, who directs Bowdoin's Latin America, Caribbean, and Latinx program, as well as Multilingual Mainers, an initiative to support bilingualism in grade schools. Mohammed worked in that program his senior year, you can learn more about Multilingual Mainers on the Conversation Corps page on our website. For immigrants like Mohammed and his family, arriving in America is a big part of their journey, but not all of it. How do they become part of their new community 
check out our episode notes on americathebilingual.com to see how the people of Maine and the state of Maine welcomed them home. If you like our podcast, please share it. Send it to a friend and be one of our reviewers on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll be helping to spread the power of bilingualism to do good in America. My thanks to the members of the America the Bilingual team who worked on this episode. For sound design and mixing, Fernando Hernandez Becerra and his production house in Guadalajara, Mexico, Esto No Es Radio. Also to Mim Harrison, our editorial and brand director who wrote and directed this episode. And Carla Hernandez at Daruma Tech, who manages our website. Gracias por escuchar. Thanks for listening. For America the Bilingual, this is Steve Levine.